0: Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Comfort Zone podcast. My name is Israe Hag from Fisheries Fitness and Nutrition. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing experts about the various topics taught in fitness education to better understand the research, challenge some beliefs and biases, and provide helpful information to all the other health and fitness professionals out there who may have questions just like mine. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Now, Please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. See you soon. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Beyond the Comfort Zone podcast. Today, we are taking a deep dive into the core. So we're going to talk about what the core is, um, what core stability is, what the research says about the core and stability, what... um, misconceptions there are out there with regards to the core and whether it's as important as we say it right now to help us dissect all the information we have the amazing joe chapel in the house hi joe hi eustra how
1: are you keeping i'm good how are you i'm really good thank you thank you for having me on for this oh, session it's thank you for real- being
0: here on your birthday
1: It is <laughs> is awesome my day. How else would <laughs> I spend my day? Did you have a good day then? <laughs> it's been really good, thank you, yes. Yeah, oh. thank you very much, yeah, good. Awesome,
0: time. so we have a lot to talk about and you know, you and I can <laughs> sit and chat for ages, right? So before mm-hmm. we start, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you do?
1: Okay, so I am a chartered physiotherapist and I qualified in 2000 and I spent the first part of my career in the UK in the NHS. And there I specialised as a senior in musculoskeletal physiotherapy. And that's where I really started to get very passionate about back pain. And then that sort of passion led into sort of the world of pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy, and postnatal care as well. And in more recent years, I have specialised in women's pelvic health as well. By 2009, I had Relocated to Cork in Ireland and set up my own physiotherapy clinic. Um, I had also um, done quite a lot of Pilates teacher training as well by um, that time, and in my clinic I run quite a few classes as well. But in very recent times, I've started doing a little bit of work with Anthony Lowe as well, um, being teaching assistant, and that's where I've come to know you, which yes. is an absolute pleasure. Um, <laughs> yeah so that's a little bit about me yeah awesome awesome
0: now we've had a lot of discussions as as i've said before and it's one of the reasons i started this podcast right there's a lot of biases and fallacies and assumptions and misconceptions and opinions when it comes to um a fitness education right everybody has their own opinions on how people should move, should sit, should stand, should breathe, how they should live. It's almost like there's this one way that you need to survive. If you don't do it that way, then you're screwed, right? Um, in the uh, previous episodes, I've spoken about the PSB model, which is the uh, postural structural biomechanics model, which is usually the uh, model that is used to teach fitness education. Now, today I want to sort of uh, take that further into uh, Pilates, but before we get there, why don't you tell us what uh, Pilates is all about and whether there are any specific models or uh, uh, protocols integrated into the teaching of Pilates itself?
1: So a lot of people would probably describe Pilates as this um, sort of mind-body of exercise where there's a massive focus on sort of working your deep abdominals to get that improved core stability, that strength, that posture, postural awareness, there's emphasis on flexibility, movement, control, um, and the way we breathe. And it's very much sort of about being in the right position at the right time. It can be It could be like a mat work style exercise where you're working on the floor, body weight stuff, fairly low impact, relatively low load. There can be a little bit of resistance in some equipment work as well, small equipment, large equipment, but a lot of that, you've got to ask questions about what is that? What are those kind of, um, comments about Pilates? What are they based on? Yeah. What, what research backs up those claims? Yeah. Um, and that's where we start to get into quite interesting territory, because actually the research is not um, there to support those claims. So there are people who will swear by Pilates. I do Pilates of a fashion and I enjoy it. Yeah. But I would also say I don't think I'm under many illusions about the research yeah you know would it's you say it's, it's, would you say it's it's more
0: about you know the whole idea behind form and a, a posture and how you have to execute you know exercise in a specific way is that is that what sort of
1: it entails yeah so i mean yes um and if you look at the history of it so pilates yeah. came from this guy this german called uh, joseph pilates yeah. um Born in 1880, so it was around quite a while ago, you know, passed away in the 60s. Um, and he developed this sort of regime of exercise. And um, basically, he was really interested in movement and exercise and activity for his own individual health. Okay. You know, he suffered with things like rheumatic fever and asthma and rickets as a child. And he really was passionate about understanding about movement and exercise, apparently. And so then, um, developed this sort of format and way of working for his own physical fitness and then he kind of at various different stages in his life he looked at doing um he looked at working with different people and he developed different sort of exercises to help these people um, whether that was in a prison of a war camp in hospital and on you know soldiers on their bed made spring-loaded stuff for them to work on and then um, later in his career he looked at working with ballet dancers and so on you know so uh, we will never know because he can't speak for himself but it seems to me that he was passionate about movement and the benefits of movement and looked at ways of developing exercise programs to help people who may have needed to move in certain ways or in different ways to their sort of usual habitual movement patterns but I think what's happened with Pilates is that over the years, it has become something more than that. It has become something almost more complicated than movement. Um, And we can take a dive into all the sort of postural, structural, biomechanical theories that are out there. And when you look at sort of Pilates training now, and in the last sort of 20, 30 years or so, it is really rooted in that. Yeah. Postural, yeah. structural, biomechanical speak. It's very much about movement dysfunction and how we correct it. It's very much about the right way to hold yourself. You must have postural alignment. You've got to breathe in this certain way. Um, and I'm not sure that's a very helpful development in the world of Pilates, you know?
0: Yeah. Is that through your ex experience I mean is there any a, a point into your a career where you thought hang on this doesn't feel right and I need to step back and evaluate how I teach or how I coach
1: yeah so like I said I um I got really very interested in back pain quite early on in my career yeah. and so um if you want to try and understand how best we can manage back pain um there's a lot of research out there that challenges a lot of the sort of commonly held beliefs about how to work with people, how to get the best outcomes with people who've got back pain. And some of the things that challenge our beliefs are things like posture and pain are not correlated, you know, core stability exercises don't necessarily actually improve outcomes for people with pain. And so when you're reading research that it's basically suggesting and, and, and showing that actually these kind of commonly held beliefs are not accurate. Right. Then, if you're looking at an exercise format or if you're looking at um, sort of protocol, yeah. like then, there's quite a lot of protocols in the world of Pilates, you have got a question. What are we doing? What are we saying? What are we, what are we teaching? And as I said, I enjoy, I enjoy the movements of Pilates, but I think the language around it, the beliefs around what we think we're doing and why we think we're doing, it it doesn't add up, you know? And so when, for me with my physio hat, looking through the lens of how best to manage back pain, um, having an interest in Pilates isn't enough. I don't think because, the research isn't there to back up a lot of the claims that there are around it. Yeah. So
0: what would your thoughts be then in terms of the uh, bio-psycho-social model compared to the PSB model, to the postural structural biomechanics model? Yeah.
1: So, um, I am a fan of the biopsychosocial model. Um, and again, if you look at the research, around pain in particular and sort of spinal pain and back pain um you know if you want to look at how to predict outcomes in people with pain yeah you know it isn't looking at radiological findings and seeing what their their mri will say um it isn't looking at their posture it isn't looking at how weak otherwise their core stability might be it's actually looking at other things it's looking at you know is there fear avoidance here how are they have they had any sleep in the last however long is there any anxiety is there any um hyper vigilance going on here how much sort of how hopeful is someone about their own recovery what sort of self-efficacy do they have are they do they feel empowered to make a difference Um, and when you start to sort of appreciate that actually, if we do not consider the impact of these factors, then we are missing a really important piece of the puzzle Yeah. and sort of just from my own clinical experience, it's a really important piece of the puzzle that we have got to consider absolutely
0: absolutely um like I've, I've also spoken to you about my uh my knee and how it started and you know like i said the days when i don't get enough rest the days when i'm sleep deprived the days when um i sort of i'm stressed right they're the days that my knee would uh, play up all day, even if I haven't performed any movement whatsoever, right? So it it does show that, yeah, our mental sort of health, capacity, strength, or whatever it is that we want to call it, plays a role. How we, you know, our emotional experiences plays a role, right, in terms of how we
1: we feel and uh, all that. Absolutely, absolutely. And, I mean, if we're going to talk in terms of, core stability and i mean i think we probably even need to ask the question what exactly is it and where which was our
0: next place? question yeah it's
1: exactly. like <laughs> if we're going to talk in terms of core stability you know um this idea that um core stability will make a difference for your pain again the research there is it, the research is just not there to support that do you know um but what we can sort of say is that if we have got um, pain then things like our experiences and our beliefs around that pain yeah. um, you know there's there's this concept that if you have a weak call then you're going to be more at risk of having pain and postural problems and dysfunctions but that's not that doesn't play out in the literature um, and actually you know we know that if you have um, if you have got quite a lot of pain you might actually, have more tension, more rigidity, um, because you perhaps might have more hypervigilance and there may be more fear avoidance and, you know, more concern over your movement patterns, for example. And, you know, the things that we say and do as fit pros and as physiotherapists, we could, we can sort of almost like a volume button. We can dial up people's pain with our language and uh, terminology around sort of not being strong enough or being too weak or or things like that or we could dial down their pain by actually acknowledging where they're coming from what yeah. does that pain mean for, mean for them what impact is it having on their life what else is going on in their life because our responses to pain are all variable massively variable you know it isn't as black and white as you have pain, your abdominal muscles stop working properly. That's not accurate. And that's, that's been shown for a very long time. The stuff we're talking about Yusra, this is not new. Yeah, This has been going, you know, there's been research about this sort of stuff. It's been, been out there for 10, 15 years. There's some papers that are 20 years old now. You know, this is not new stuff that we're talking about, but, um, you know, our experiences and our beliefs are the things that can really influence our pain and our symptoms. Yeah, And that can be quite a challenging concept. It isn't as black and white as you have muscles that are not working. That's out of date, it's inaccurate, and it's oversimplistic to suggest that this is all about inhibition of certain muscles, or we need to sort of work on exciting certain muscles I mean that's just too simplistic of you yeah so what
0: would your thoughts be then towards this whole idea of your core is important you need to you know have this much core strength and build this much stability and you know what would you what would you say to the importance of importance being placed on the core it's almost like the core is this only thing that we have to worry about right for our existence
1: absolutely absolutely i would say that the importance of core stability has been massively overemphasized there's been assumptions made on it um but again like this is what we are saying here is not new yeah this is not new concepts this stuff has been out there for a long time. I think this whole idea of the core is um, it's it is out of date and it is overemphasized. And you know what is the core? Well, I think people will talk in terms of you know it's it's in it's in reference to your abdominal muscles and you know how how well your abdominal muscles are working, how strong they are, how much you switch them on. Um, really directly impacts your spinal stability your performance your physicality your posture and again um the evidence to and your breathing
0: let's not forget that
1: breathing, breathing. special breathing yeah absolutely um, you know the, the evidence to support those claims is is weak it's 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 weak and there's just so much more research that's come out that just shows it is not that simple it is not that is not the case, you know? Um, oh, Yusra, I could talk for ages. You know, what what about what about all the normal anatomical variants? Yeah. You know, people who don't have transverse abdominis. What about people whose transverse abdominis and internal obliques are just fused? Right. You know? What about those people? What about people, you know, th- there was this idea that um, people in pain, um, they had, Um, poor time, the timing of their abdominal muscles was the issue. You know, the pain was inhibiting their muscle function. That meant that the abs weren't firing when they should have, when they were about to move. And so this delay was the issue. So we need to get the abs working. We found timing issues in people who have no pain. What does that tell us? What does that tell us about these beliefs that we have around the core. I think what's really interesting is if we consider the history and the context.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Because there's so many theoretical models around all of this. And, you know, once upon a time, people were asking questions and putting hypotheses out there. And and there was this idea emerging that your abdominal muscles were really important for your spinal stability.
0: Right.
1: Right. And there were so many different sort of tangents and research studies that came off from these, this, this sort of essential concept. Yeah. And what's happened is that sort of since those initial thoughts were put out there, it's almost like, um, the, there's been this sort of, the research findings have been adopted in this real sort of hard line over simplistic view. Mm. You know, pain means muscle timing issues. Therefore we must squeeze our abs to get the muscles working properly to improve our posture and our pain. But like if we go back to the people who were sort of starting the research back in the day, sort of six around the sixties, seventies, eighties, um, there were these ideas emerging around things like, um, you know, the load displacement curve, Punjabi, talking about um, the neutral zone. And in terms of theoretical models, it's fascinating. It's really interesting, this idea that there's this state in which the spinal joints are beautifully aligned, really nice and efficiently stacked with minimal load or tension, everything is really nice and neutral, and then sort of either side of that neutral zone you've got this elastic limit which accounts for our normal physiological range and then beyond that if we extend beyond our normal range then we're into sort of displacement we're into dysfunction you know um, and that was just one sort of model we've got these other models that came out in terms of sort of local muscular systems global muscular systems we've got force closure form closure all the different slings going on anterior oblique slings posterior oblique slings all that jazz and the people doing these studies there were loads of physios involved in a lot of this work as well Um, but you had people who were professors in biomechanics professors in ergonomics people who were studying who, who were doctors in human anatomy, um, orthopedic spinal surgeons coming up with these theoretical models. And if you're an orthopedic spinal surgeon who deals with traumatic and unstable spinal fractures, then you are going to be talking in terms of spinal instability. But that's perhaps the only time we should ever use the term unstable spine or spine instability is when we're talking about an unstable fracture. Or spondylolysthesis, or something like that. Any other sort of, you know, so the history I think is really important. You know, you had these theoretically, theoretical models coming out, and then it's almost like you had um, the physio world and, um, you know, all the other sort of healthcare professional people sort of trying to then find a practical application for these concepts and these models. And this biomechanical information, this structural information. So then you'll get the evolution, and then we have the evolution of things like kinetic motor control, work. Yeah. You know, and all this world of motor control impairments, and how we need to address the initial restriction at that local segmental level, and then we deal with lo- uh, like local muscular control, and then we progress to global muscular systems. Um, and sort of from an objective point of view, you can kind of see the thought evolution, do you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Abs are important for our spine. Our spine might be unstable. Let's find ways to get our spine stable. Let's start working the abdominal muscles more. Yeah. The only problem is that's way too oversimplistic. And also it's not massively accurate. And do you think,
0: Think we uh, adopt those models, and we are taught about those because they're sort of easier to implement, as opposed to t- telling someone, "Ah, I don't really know what's wrong. We, let's see what works." <laughs> right? Yes. Because at the yeah. end of the day, we really don't know, do we? We absolutely do not know much.
1: Uh, we, I think we know a lot more than we did. Yeah, you know, I think we know a lot more than we did. I think one of the challenges is that um, there's a lot of things people find helpful. Yeah. But it might just might not be that they're helping in ways that we think they're helping. Yeah. We think they're helping you know, like So, you know, my, my undergrad training and a lot of my postgrad stuff, it was still very much Postural, biomechanical, structural, you know, uh, my Pilates training was very much that. And I think you're dead right, sort of trying to approach from another perspective or trying to sort of approach things from that sort of biopsychosocial perspective, it is challenging because it requires a very different skill set that I certainly wasn't taught at university. And you also have a lot of practical limitations to how to implement sort of biopsychosocial model for example you know it would not work in an NHS setting where you're only allowed 20 minutes to see your clients yeah absolutely but so there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges to actually um, looking at addressing it in, in addressing um, working with people in in ways other than the biomechanical and the structural yeah. ways
0: I mean, I remember when I was taught all these things, right? I'm am a pre and postnatal coach, so I work with a lot of postnatal mums, some really early on, and I remember they would come to me, and the first thing I would do is do an assessment, you know, and I'm like, yeah, you have you have an imbalance here, imbalance there, and I'm talking to these. This mum who's been through a heck of a lot has just had the baby, and here I am, I'm telling her how broken she is, right? Looking back, I'm horrified that that's how actually
1: I approach clients because it's what we're taught. I didn't know any different, right? Absolutely, yeah. But you're not alone there, so I think that's a really natural path for everybody actually and and if you if you look at um like the physiotherapists who've been involved in a lot of this yeah. research over time you know you've got very well-known people the likes of paul hodges peter o'sullivan people who were originally talking in terms of spinal stability instability clinical instability core stability and they've since gone on to develop various different sort of hypotheses it's almost hypotheses. the other end like absolutely. You know, yeah, absolutely and and i think they there's, there's so many other names to mention but what i admire so much is these people sort of put their hands up and say look folks this is evolution this is research this is us testing the hypothesis yeah. so i think what you've just described there is completely universal and i i think it's something that resonates for so many people i know it is for me too and you know that was my training as well but as you learn more as you experience more you can change you can evolve and it's a very natural sort of process as well i think if we can keep our blinkers off if we can keep our eyes open if we can keep asking questions and when you find that things just may not stack up yeah. we can ask questions about why might that be you know um, And I think recognizing that things change, Mm. recognizing that we may need to change, recognizing that we may need to continually upskill is is a very powerful place to be. Yeah. I want to step back a bit and talk about
0: uh, core stability in terms of abdominal strength, right? So if we're looking at a postpartum mum, she's just had a baby. Her abdominal wall is probably at its weakest, yet she's standing and
1: walking around. How is she doing that with all that unstable spine, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So really brings into question this whole thing about, you know, core stability and, you know, you're dead right. I mean, there are studies that show that the muscle timing, the activation of abdominal muscles, and even... The cross-sectional area of muscles doesn't correlate to performance or pain, and like you say, there, you know, you just give birth, and your abdominal muscles are really not as you as they once were. Mm. How yet you can still get up out of bed and walk around? Okay, it may not be massively comfortable, but also, Mm. Yusra, what about um, pregnant women with pelvic girdle pain, right? Mm. Um, And postpartum, the really high incidence of women whose pelvic girdle pain will spontaneously resolve or very quickly improve quite early on postnatally. Sometimes it's a matter of days, sometimes it's a couple of weeks or whatever for women, but there are a high percentage of women who may have had pelvic girdle or pregnancy related low back or pelvic girdle pain. They give birth and there's this quite remarkable improvement in their pelvic girdle pain. Yet, as you've just identified, you would imagine that's a time where, you know, their core stability will be at its weakest. So how, how does that marry up? And I think the question to say, or the thing to sort of acknowledge is, well, that just doesn't fit this popular belief and this common notion of core stability. So what else is going on? And I don't believe that we have got to always have the answers I think we should be trying to look for them Absolutely. you know we, we owe it to ourselves and our clients and the people that we work with to just try and identify if these stories that we hear are they fact or are they fiction yeah you know we just we just need to sort of just take that a little bit of a deeper dive. Um, I think one of the big problems is that from the research, that was emerging years and years ago about sort of is abdominal strength in any way important. There's just been so many assumptions made. It's like the horse has bolted and now it's like this global popular belief that core stability is this thing, right? And that, you know, woe betide you if you don't switch your core on before you lift whatever. Like it's in the fitness industry, isn't it? Like however many classes you go to now, breathe in to prepare and as you breathe out, what I want you to do is to draw in and da da, da. Yeah, and and in fairness, right? In fairness, that's not just Pilates. It's not just Pilates, it's yoga, it's CrossFit. You, it's I used coach. to coach it's that. Yes. I used to coach that, engage your core <laughs> if you do anything, you know? You're not alone, you you're not. you you're not alone, you know? <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's and it's, it's even it's even in manual handling training, you know. I was talking to somebody uh, fairly recently, and they were just sort of telling me about oh, you, you know I, I know all about the core because I know what I've got to do now when I'm sort of picking stuff up or moving stuff. And you're there, sort of thinking, oh, we've we're still not- got we've still got such a long way to go, do you know. But it's it's like it's it's everywhere you go. It's all pervasive. It's like it's it's almost been sort of mythologized now or sorry it's it's, it's almost like it's real popular belief and um, it's really hard to sort of break that belief sometimes it seems
0: yeah when you run your classes do you cue core engagement in any way like how, how how do you go around that because it's called- I, yeah
1: so i used to but i haven't in a very 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 long time and i do remember just rocking up um to i think it was a monday evening after uh, my head had just kind of exploded from <laughs> I, I think it was a peter o'sullivan course in fairness back in the day and i just remember looking at my class and just thinking right i i cannot say anything about stability, about queuing your abs and I'm just not going to and I remember being a little bit tongue-tied in my class first of all kind of thinking no, 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 don't, don't say this Um, and then there's been this sort of evolution over time and now sort of the words that I might use are much more sort of okay, you know, if we're doing a shoulder bridge for example, yeah. so laying down on the floor, knees bent up and you're going to sort of you know, it probably would have taken me 50, 60 words to cue that once upon a time Whereas now, if we're coming to a shoulder bridge, I might just say, okay, lift your bum. Yeah. Just see what happens. What happens. And then how does that feel? What's going on for you? And then maybe, you know, at the moment, like there's a, everything's online, so there could be, God knows how many people there and all online. And you're just watching all these people and you're just queuing them to play. Yeah. Yeah. it feels what's going on for them. Do they need to do anything different? Is it feeling okay? Do they want to make it any harder? Do they need to make it any easier? It's just totally different now. And like, don't get me wrong. I do believe there is a place for Pilates in the world, just as there is for yoga and CrossFit and um, personal training. And we need all of these things. We need all these movements. We need all these options. Yeah. because everyone is different you know i just think we do need to think about what we're saying yeah and, and yeah you know. now what one
0: may ask is okay so if everybody can move how they want to and all the stuff then where does biomechanics come in where does a posture come in where does a form come in when are those things start to be more important so or a technique when is
1: technique starting to get more important you know yeah i i think it really depends on what is i think it really depends on who is in front of you yeah it depends on what you're trying to achieve yeah um there's loads of different tangents from that question you should. um i think if we're dealing with somebody who is looking at a one rep max lift, Yeah, you know, if we're dealing in terms of um, Olympic lifting, powerlifting. If we're dealing sort of high level, particularly sort of real heavyweight kind of so stuff. So
0: a pyramid of performance kind of absolutely. sort of, yeah?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Then I think we really do need to be very mindful yeah. of these kind of things. The thing for me is that Pilates is so low load. Generally it's body weight. Yeah. You know, there, there may be some resistance, but still it's very low, relatively speaking, sort of yeah. weightlifting, yeah. you know. And um, it's low in, It's low intensity to some extent. You absolutely can make it moderate intensity. You've got to work quite hard to make it quite high intensity. Yeah. But in my mind, I see that um, you have huge amount of play in that. And there is so much scope for doing things in lots and lots and lots of different ways. It depends on who's in front of you. Is the person in front of you, somebody who has some sort of, that they're recovering from some sort of surgery versus somebody who just wants to try Pilates and has no medical history, then your approach might be quite different. Like why would you do with Pilates any in the first place? Like specificity is really important, do you know? You should only really do Pilates if you want to do Pilates. That, that's it, that's your only reason. Because the research shows that it's no better or superior to any other form of exercise, whether we want to accept that or not, do you know? Yeah. So if somebody is coming into the clinic and they're saying, I've got back pain and I need to I've been told I need to strengthen my core and I've been told I need to do Pilates, then like, again, that's all stories. And and you just, I would see that we have a responsibility to nip that in the bud. Yeah. Do you want to do Pilates? Yeah. Because if you do, then we can go one way, but if you don't, then let's not bother because it's no better than anything else. And so should we look at posture? Should we look at biomechanics? Should we look at structure? It depends. What's going on for the person in front of us? What do they want to do? Do they want to do Pilates or not? If they don't want to do Pilates, you don't do Pilates. Like once upon a time, I would have anyone coming in to see me, particularly the back pain, spinal pain, they would have, you know, Rehab would have started with that local muscular stability or strengthening program. Let's get, let's isolate the abs. Let's get them going. Let's get them working. Let's build on from there. Let's do closed kinetic chain stuff. And I think it, you know. It just did not serve everybody
0: yeah because this a person where you're you're starting with laying down and doing all these slow things she's going home to four kids running around lifting heavy stuff yeah, here we are going oh let's start here first right you have to breathe a yeah. certain way
1: yeah um, and, and and then we're going around in circles we're going back around to the whole thing of why are we doing that why are they laying down on the floor oh because it's more secure it's more stable it's safer is it Is it, or are we just holding people back? Like you say, if these people then are going to go home and lift 15 kg every day, how many times a day. Absolutely. Have we served served these people or not? Yeah, absolutely.
0: So I guess my next question would be, how do you um, marry the two? How do you, you know, your physiotherapy work and Pilates work, how does it come together?
1: Uh, It's quite... It's, it, quite easily now yeah you know? um insofar as as i said a moment ago um like i will only do pilates inspired stuff um with people who want to do pilates inspired stuff yeah do you know um just like somebody might choose to do a yoga class you would imagine they choose to do a yoga class because they want to do yoga or somebody goes to join a kettlebell class because they want to do kettle do you know what i mean yeah. so that i have that's straightforward in my mind i'm just my language my cueing if any is just very different to where it was once before um and so the physio side of things again i've got to say i i am a physio first and foremost and i wear that hat primarily Um, And so for me, again, if somebody is in front of me and they want to be able to compete in a triathlon, if they want to be able to lift their grandchild, if they want to be able to just um, cook without back pain, then I'm going to work with that. I'm going to work with those things. So sometimes I might look at some Pilates stuff. Yeah. A lot of the time I won't. It's it's a relatively straightforward process in my opinion. So it's kind of like you
0: you want to be able to stand on one leg. Let's teach you how to stand on one leg
1: by actually practicing. Exactly. On exactly. <laughs> Specificity. Exactly. And I suppose the other thing just sort of popped into my head there, as you say, in terms of, um, you know, if we look at um, sort of Well, we've got to make sure that their trunk muscles are working properly first and and that's why we must do pilates or that's why we must engage the abdominal muscles first well like is it even if we're going to brace or engage or activate or switch on or however you want to say it work the abdominal muscles it's such low threshold that you're just not going to get that muscle hypertrophy yeah we want to get stronger we need to start lifting stuff yeah you know we need to work with resist yeah and and yes there is resistance in pilates but it's not it's not it's
0: not the same Same. yeah it's not this the the same stimulus that you need to sort of
1: uh, 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 cause that type of adaptation to happen basically Yeah. yeah the threshold is just too low and that isn't necessarily to say that that's bad or that it's wrong or that it's not helpful yeah like I love working on reform and the trapeze table and all of that stuff. And there are people who will swear by causability work, Pilates work. And there are people who will just very passionately feel that it is the thing that has turned their life around. Yeah. And I would, I completely believe that when people say that to me, that, you know, this, this has made all the difference to me. I believe that it has made all the difference. I would just question why it's made all the difference. Have we actually strengthened the core or have we just got people moving?
0: Yeah.
1: Has the fact that it's been quite a social thing. Yeah. Is it just the endorphins of the exercise? Is it just that now you're a bit more confident with movement? Is it a feel good factor?
0: Yeah. And all of those things it. are brilliant. Yeah. yeah. I've spoken to a few uh, Pilates instructors before, and they often refer to this whole idea of uh, slings, which you mentioned before the official slings. Talk to us about that a bit.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this idea of slings, again, I think if we go back to what we were saying earlier in terms of these sort of theoretical models, um, and um, one, I mean, there's lots of different people who put ideas out there. um, But you'd have um, Andre Bleemey talking a lot about You know the anterior oblique sling, the posterior oblique sling, and how we can get um, these muscles working to best improve. We've got this concept of like force closure and form closure, and if we work with the slings, we're generating or creating or enhancing form closure through the work of the muscles to help again stabilize and secure and and help to align, if you like. Pelvis and the spinal column, um, and so again, you would go down this sort of rabbit hole of looking at certain, at certain, at certain, ex- certain, ex- the interior oblique sling, for example. Um, and you've got other sort of theories and models. You've got sort of a lot of the Tom Thomas Meyer stuff as well on anatomy trains and looking at a lot of the myofascial slings and and it's really fascinating stuff. And it's really very, very, very interesting. Mm. And I think there is a lot that we can take from all of these models, and they have had a profound impact on um, the way that we work and help to move sort of ideas forward. Um, And I think they have all contributed hugely to the way we work with people. And, and certainly how I work with people as a physiotherapist. So all of these, um, all this sort of contribution from all these people has been absolutely fantastic. I think the issue is when we try and interpret these things, when we try and interpret, what does it mean to get the deep longitudinal sling firing? What does it mean? What do we need to do? I think it's the translation or interpretation of these sort of theoretical models and the research into every day, real life is where there is this sort of mix-up. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. I think trying to just look at somebody in terms of, right, so when you walk, this muscle isn't firing correctly, so we need to fire up your glutes and this posterior much more. So what you're going to do is you're going to go home and work on 10 reps of these It's sort of trying to, I think the difficulty and the problems have occurred when we've tried to interpret all these theoretical models into practical day-to-day life and I'm not sure that it has always given, yielded the results that we may have hoped for because I think it's an incomplete picture. Right,
0: right. Do you think it's an incomplete picture because it, it misses out the psychosocial part as that could sort of play a part in it or or, or I think is, it, it, inc- is it hard to just um take that from a theory and apply it in sort of a clinical setting let's say
1: I think it's a little bit of all of that and a lot more mm-hmm. I think you know the brain does not think in terms of individual muscles. The brain thinks in terms of, you know, movement patterns, just move. Like I'm, I'm trying to learn how to do double unders skipping at the moment. And I'm, I just, you know, I'm not there yet. I will be one day. Um, like if, if I was trying to think about, I need to get my wrists and forearms rotating, Much quicker, double time, whilst I get my gastrocs and hamstrings and glutes kicking off as I land, and then I've got it. You know, if if I was trying to think like that, I'd just be more of a mess than I am actually in. Do you know? Whereas if I just think, get your head through the ceiling, get your head to the ceiling, like get high. Do you know? And fast arms, fast arms, quick whip, flick. Do you know? We, I think. I think it's an incomplete picture because our brains and the way we work, we're, we're not machines. We're not machines. We're biological, but we're sentient beings as well. We are thoughts, we are beliefs, we are experiences. We are, do you know, why can somebody jump up on a box and the next person can't? Loads of reasons. Might have nothing to do with ankle, hip, and knee mobility. Might have nothing to do with their strength and rebound and plyometrics ability, but it might have everything to do with the fact that as a kid, they stumbled on a block and whacked their front teeth out. So now they're petrified of jumping. Do do you know what I mean? It's. I think it's an incomplete picture because it doesn't tell the whole story. And I think if we try and just look at firing up someone's glutes or firing up their abs, I think maybe we're missing piece of the puzzle. And I think there are times when people do get better if you tell them just to work on their core. You know, there's definitely been people who've got better when you just do the whole postural, structural, biomechanical thing. But there's also loads of people who don't get better that way. And so what else do we need to do we i think just accepting that there's lots of different ways there's lots of different things there's lots of different approaches and i think we need to be open to all of those approaches rather than just sort of being very fixed or un, like like unidirectional almost you know there's no one way yeah
0: yeah
1: just keep doing
0: something different do it all the ways. The whole base of the support, right? Build as yeah. a bigger base of support as you can. Basically. Completely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Appreciating that on any given day, there's loads of other variables that might influence someone's performance. Yeah. Have they slept? Have they not? Are they well? Are they not well? Is there something going on in their life? Have they just lost their job? Are they about to move house? Are they getting married? What else is happening for them? You know, are they suffering with any sort of gut or digestive things that might be increasing their sensitivity to stuff? Like what else is going on for people? We are, we are complex beings. We're wonderful and fascinating, but we can be complex. complex. Yeah. I think to sort of just think in terms of singular muscles, um, you know it is is way too simplistic yeah. and also this assumption that you can like consciously control things like the firing of your abdominal muscles like we, we've spoken before about the timing issue and about all the um the eight milliseconds we have to get onto that eight think, milliseconds <laughs> yeah so exactly like the, the the sort of timing issues and discussions like the research studies are talking in terms of milliseconds yeah do you know like, I, I don't, yeah, we can't consciously control stuff like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: So what would your advice be? I know you and I have been through a long journey this past year, right? With a masterclass and all that stuff. And we've, yeah, I've had my mind blown like a thousand times over and over again in the best possible way, right? And I've, I've, I've. Yeah. I've gone through the whole stage of, Oh my God, I know nothing. Right. And being feeling challenged in every possible way. And I'm in that stage where I'm like, you know, what, what I do works right. But it may not be for the reasons. I think I'm comfortable to say, you know what, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I can help you. We can make it better. What would your advice be to all the other health and fitness professionals out there
1: um in terms of in terms
0: of how they work in terms of how to approach you know patients clients in terms of their language in terms of their biases and the assumptions that we make just because we are trying to understand things better and you know to give reasons behind those things
1: yeah i think being open to the fact that we don't have all the answers, yeah. but that I think being open to the fact that things may work, but not necessarily for the reasons that we think they do, you know, um, like I think being mindful of our language and the impact that can have, um, and, um, it was Jilly bond actually, um, and I, who, who racco- who mentioned once upon a time, you know, don't be a Nasebo, don't sort of use Nasebo, nece- you know, be mindful of your language because we can have a detrimental effect on people's health by making them, um, perhaps too fearful or too nervous or too conscious about their per- the posture, the perfect postural alignment perfect and the right way, the correct way to breathe. I mean, breathing is breathing. Like you're breathing. That's amazing. Keep breathing. You're doing it brilliantly. Keep breathing. Do you know? Um, and if we constantly cue to the nth degree, um, every single tiny little movement, what are, what are we doing for people that way? What are, what message are we giving? What impact might that have? Particularly in, in my profession where I am working with people who have quite a lot of pain. Am I helping them or am I hindering them? Am am I feeding into hypervigilance? Yeah. Am I feeding into low self-efficacy? If I am instructing them on how to move because they can't trust their own body and because they don't know how to do something. Am I, um, am I serving somebody that way or If with my language, I could, I could teach the same Pilates class in two very different ways. I could be over cueing. I could be talking in terms of correct way, the right way, avoid dysfunction, promote normal postural alignment and performance and make sure you switch on. And I could, I could work that way, which might have sometimes a negative impact on people because they don't know how to move their own body, you know, Um, or I could do the same class with the same exercises and talk in terms of, how does it feel? Amazing. That's fantastic. Play with this movement. There's no, you can't cause any harm here. There's nothing dangerous here. This is low load. You know, you're in, breathe any way that feels good for you. You know, I think if we can be mindful of our language and the messages that we are putting across to people, and if we're promoting self-efficacy or promoting this idea, of, but if we're just helping to empower people, yeah. then at the very least, we are urging towards a more positive outcome people because that's what the research is showing us yeah
0: do you know um yeah, yeah. so much to say so much to say and you know what like an hour <laughs> 45 minutes is never gonna be enough this there's, there's that i want to <laughs> cover but we're gonna have to save that next time as i'm being conscious about your time since it's your birthday <laughs> oh, no problem at all <laughs> well, So, so happy to have had you here, Joe. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, I mean, I think as someone who works with uh, people and wanting to help them, I think our words matter, right? The language that we use matters. It can either make someone feel empowered and capable or makes someone feel weak and broken. Uh, Absolutely. you know out of everything that we do how we can talk to people can have a, a big impact on the perception of themselves as well right Absolutely. on their own ability Great. so yeah that was awesome advice thanks joe all right and with that i'm gonna to have to say let's catch
1: you next time <laughs> oh, i'd love to come back thank you so much for having me so thank, really you so good good thank, thank you so much for your time thank you soon